Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your spirit mightily amongst us this morning. It is such a privilege to be able to gather uh, with more of us here this morning than we have been in recent weeks and months. Oh Lord, we pray that your spirit would be working on our hearts this morning who have come to worship you. That is why we're here this morning. It is not to honour ourselves, but to honour you, O oh God. And so Lord, we pray that as we study your word together, that we would consider all your precepts as right and hate every wrong path. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Colossians. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, we're up to now where the Apostle Paul has been writing to the church in Colossae and instructing them as to how they are to live in the Lord, particularly because it seems that some heresy has come into the church. Some false teachers are amongst them and are proclaiming things that are contrary to the gospel that the Apostle Paul has given them. And so we've been working through what the Apostle Paul is reminding the Colossians about and particularly who the Lord Jesus is and what they are in Christ Jesus. And so last week we looked at uh, verse 11 and 12 and we looked at how he has circumcised our hearts and how we've been baptised into the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been buried with him in baptism and raised with him to newness of life. And now in verse 13, continuing on from this idea of the, uns of the circumcision of our sinful nature, he mentions at the end of verse 13 that God has forgiven us all our sins. Look with me at verse 13. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. It's a tremendous statement there at the end of verse 13, that he forgave us all our sins. But what does that mean? How can we understand that God has forgiven us all our sins? Well, to understand what it mean, the forgiveness of sins actually means, we first have to understand what sin is. What is this sin that we have that we need to be forgiven by God? Well, verse 14 goes on to elaborate how we have this forgiveness of sins and what sin actually looks like. In verse 14, we read, Having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he, that is Christ, took it away, nailing it to the cross. That our sins have been taken away and nailed to the cross is explained there in verse 14. And this is what we're going to concentrate particularly this morning. If you've got a Bible, have it open there at Colossians chapter 2. And verse 14, we'll be concentrating on how that teaches us what forgiveness of sins looks like. And the first thing we have to understand, as I said before, is what is sin? How would you define sin? Well, verse 14 gives us an idea as to what sin looks like. Verse 14 says, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. What is this written code that is cancelled, that is forgiven by God? Well, there's lots of different ways that people try to understand this and how to translate it. It's not a very common word in the Greek uh, New Testament. And so the, you have to go outside the Greek New Testament to look at how the word was used in other contexts by other Greek writers. But usually it is understood to be a debt. It is something that is handwritten. Uh, and so you could think of it as an IOU. You, you think of IOUs usually as a handwritten note. You write it on a napkin or something, IOU, and then it's listed there, the debt that you owe to someone. And that is what we have as human beings. We have a debt to God. We have an IOU. Now, how do we come to have an IOU to God? 
Well, we are all made under a covenant of works. God has contracted the whole of his human race to work for him and to do particular works to him. We owe him these works as our creator who has made us. If you make something, then you expect it to abide by your wishes, particularly if it's some sort of electronic device these days. If you make something or set something up, you expect it to do what you've made it for. And that is what God has done with us. He has made us for a particular job, for many works that we're supposed to do. What are these works? Well, there are many, many of them. And over the years, greater detail was given by God as to how we are to live, how we are to serve him, what works we are to do. Under Moses, greater detail was given even more so than uh, the patriarchs would have received in the book of Genesis. We think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, they served the Lord. They did works for him. Uh, Following on from their ancestor, Adam and Eve, back in the garden, they were given works to do. And then, of course, with Moses, uh, he receives at the top of Mount Sinai uh, commandments from God and under Christ's ministry. You look at the Lord Jesus and what he taught, and he taught uh, the famous Sermon on the Mount, And there, greater detail is given of the kinds of works that we are to perform for God, the debt that we owe to God. But aren't the laws just for Jews, you might say? How do we know that they're for all the world? Well, Gentiles, non-Jews, are to work for God as well because we have been created, we've all been created by God. It's not as though the Jews have one God who created them and then the Gentiles have another God who created them. No, we're all descended from those first parents, Adam and Eve back in the garden. And that contract was made with them, that covenant was made with them, that they were to work for God so many years ago. And so we still are under that contract from God many years ago. And we know the laws of God. Even if we haven't read the Bible before, we haven't read the laws of Moses that were given, we haven't read the laws of Jesus that were explained to us, that he elaborated on the laws that were given in the Old Testament, we know the law of God. We know that God has made us and that we're expected to serve him. And the Bible tells us that. In Romans chapter 2, verse 14, Romans chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, who do not have the law of what works we're meant to do, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Everybody in the world knows that they're supposed to work for God, that they have an obligation to their creator, and it is written on their hearts, it's also written in the law, even we think of the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses, and they were handwritten by the finger of God, they were written by God on the stone tablets. And so we all know that we're supposed to serve God, that we're supposed to give him the works that he has commanded for us to perform. But this is also bad news to us. Why? Well, the debt is against us and stands opposed to us. We look at verse 14. It says, Having cancelled the written code, that handwritten code, that IOU with its regulations, so all the different stipulations that, of, of what you owe to God, that was against us and that stood opposed to us. When you think of a contract and you sign a contract, there are often blessings that will come if you sign off on a contract that if I do this, then this will happen to me and the other person will uh, pay uh, for what we've done. But if we do not perform our side of the bargain, what happens? There are penalties that are applied to us. And that is what has happened to us. 
in this world because we have not lived up to our side of the agreement, to our side of the covenant. We have instead failed to perform the works that God has given us. And so therefore, the debt is against us and stands opposed to us, verse 14 says, and penalties will follow. But some of you may say, but I'm a good person. I haven't failed to do the works that God has given me. Well, it doesn't take very long to show that you are not a good person, that you have failed, that there is a debt against your name. If we look at the Bible, we see that the works of God are extremely rigorous, that he's given us many works to perform. Many, many, many things are meant to be done with our lives as we serve our Creator. If we just consider the Ten Commandments that we read before in Exodus chapter 20, and we look at the second table of the Ten Commandments, we usually break up the Ten Commandments into two tables. We have the first four, and then we have the last six commandments. So first four speak about how we are to relate to God specifically, and then the last uh, six speak about how we are to relate to our fellow man. And if you just look at those ones that you relate to your fellow man, which are the, usually the obvious ones that people look at. Number five of the, tenth of the Ten Commandments is, honour your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Can we actually say that we have honoured our father and our mother always, from a young age right up till your parents are much older and have grey hair or maybe not much hair, and you still, you're called to honour them, even at that stage in their lives. And what about the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. But then we understand that the Lord Jesus says that when we get angry, we have murdered our brother in our heart. And so we have failed to serve the Lord by not getting angry with our fellow man. You shall not commit adultery, which Jesus then speaks about how we have all committed adultery. If we've ever lusted after someone who is not our spouse, we have committed adultery in our heart. You shall not steal. That doesn't just mean robbing banks. That means even the little petty thefts of you steal from the tax office or from your fellow man in some small way. You pick up his paper that's been put on his front lawn in the morning and you take it away. That's theft. If it's not yours, it doesn't belong to you. But we sometimes think, oh, it's okay. But that's what we're supposed to do by God's, uh, by God's law. We're not supposed to steal. And then the ninth commandment, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. We're not supposed to lie. And number ten, you shall not even covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. So at first you think, oh, I'm okay because I haven't coveted my neighbour's manservant or his maidservant because he hasn't got a butler, um, so I haven't really coveted having that. Or his ox or his donkey because my neighbour doesn't have an ox or a donkey. But then the last bit, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Oh, dear. I have not done what the Lord wants me to do. I have not served him faithfully. And that's just the second table of the law. What about the first table of the law? The commandments that speak about how we are to relate to our God, not just to our fellow men, but to our God. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. How often have we broken that and had other gods in our lives, including the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. And then we learn in the New Testament that idolatry can include greed, all those things that we set up in our lives, that we derive satisfaction from and enjoy are a form of idolatry. And then the third commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, 
for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And that includes not just the coarse language, it includes the vain oaths that we may take, and even just taking God's name upon us and then living in a way that is completely uh, in discord with what he teaches, saying this is what a person of God looks like, when, of course, we're living in a totally different way. And so these sins of omission and worship that comes in in the fourth commandment weigh up against us as well. This is a debt that comes against us. I've been more conscious that I think we're, we, we, we focus so much on the second table of the law, the way that we relate to our fellow man, and we don't think about all the sins of omission, how we have not loved God as we should. And when Jesus sums up the whole of the law, he sums it up in two commandments. And what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. But the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Have we done that? That is a work that he has given us to do. We're contracted to do that. Do you love the Lord that way? And the answer must be no. So what does that then mean? We have a debt to God. We are indebted to him because we have not served him as he has commanded. But you may say, oh, but the debt can't be that large. It can't be that large. But the enormity of the debt is actually pictured for us in the Bible in the parable of the unforgiving servant. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 23. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. And I want us to understand from this parable how Jesus teaches us the enormity of our debt. Of course, the parable's main point is to teach how we are meant to forgive our fellow man if God forgives us an awful lot. But I want us to just focus on in this parable how much we owe God. We think we have a debt to God and it's small? No, look at this parable. Verse 23 of Matthew chapter 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. Then, of course, the parable continues, and we look at the abominable uh, reaction of the servant to uh, a debt of his fellow man towards him, a very insignificant debt. But here I want us to focus on the size of this debt that this king cancelled. And this, of course, is a parable that's speaking of the way that God, as king, cancels the debt of his servants, as we read in Colossians chapter 2, having cancelled the IOU, the debt that was standing against us. But is it a large debt that this king cancels for this servant? Yes, it is. It's 10,000 talents. And you go, oh, of course. That's huge. That's if you know what a talent is. What's a talent? Is it like $10,000? Is it like 10,000 cents? What does it mean here when he says that he cancelled 10,000 talents? Well, 10,000 talents works out to be about an ordinary wage for 200,000 years. 200,000 years. So think of how much you make in a year and then times that by 200,000. That is the size of the debt that this servant had towards the king who represents God. 200,000 years. Billions of dollars worth of debt that this servant had towards the king. And the king 
cancelled it. You may say, okay, it sounds like a large debt, but surely the penalty for not keeping the covenant of works is not that bad, for not serving the Lord as we should. Yes, it's a big debt, but is it really that bad? What is the pain for owing such a large amount to God? Well, the pain, the penalty that comes to us is eternity in debtor's prison. Just think about that, 200,000 years, that's an awful lot of debt. And so it doesn't then seem that unusual, that strange, that the payment, the penalty for our debt towards God, for all the times we have not served him as we should, is eternity in debtor's prison, in a debtor's prison of hell. And that's what the Lord Jesus speaks about. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, he says, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin, and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what are we to do if we have debts that are against our name, that stand opposed to us, that we cannot pay? Well, that brings us to the good news that's given to us in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, turn back with me there if you're still in Matthew 18. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, which is explaining verse 13, that wonderful statement, he forgave us all our sins. How has he forgiven us our sins? Well, it says there in verse 14, having cancelled the debt, the written code, the IOU that you wrote out, with all its regulations, with all those debts that you have outlined there. It was cancelled by the Lord Jesus Christ. That word cancelled there is the idea of being, uh, of erasing something, of wiping something out. And so if we want to picture it, it's not so much an IOU that's written on a napkin, which would never, you'd have to have an enormous napkin uh, for, to write out all our sins against the Lord, all the ways that we have wronged him, all the ways that we have not done what we should. Think of a massive, massive whiteboard with tiny, tiny writing on it that has all the times that you've sinned on it, all the debts that you owe to God. And then Christ comes along with a major duster and wipes it all out. He erases it completely. And so that IOU that was against you, that stood opposed to you, is now erased. It is completely blank. But how did Jesus do that? How did he wipe away all that sin? that was against your name? Was it by saying, I don't, oh, don't worry about it any longer, it's not a big deal? We don't take sin seriously around here? No, he takes sin very seriously. How did he do it? Well, verse 14 gives us the answer. Having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, how did he cancel it? He took it away, nailing it to the cross. It's by the cross of Christ that our debt has been cancelled. The idea here is probably of the way that a charge was put above a man as he was crucified on the cross. And we see that with the Lord Jesus. What is written above the Lord Jesus when he's on the cross? The King of the Jews. That was what he was charged with. That was why he was crucified. That was why, and and if anyone was crucified, uh, as a person is suffering there, people could read if the charge was put there so that they could understand why this person was suffering in this way. And that is what Jesus did. He took the charges that were against us and nailed them to the cross. As he suffered there on the cross, our sin was put upon his body and he suffered. And so that IOU that we had against us was taken to the cross and nailed there in Christ's body 
as he suffered in our place. And so Jesus has repaid the debt that we owe to God if we trust in him. And the Apostle Paul reiterates this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. He abolished in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. He abolished it in his flesh as he was there at the cross. So that is what forgiveness of sin looks like. That is what we read in verse 13. He forgave us all our sins. How is that possible? Well, it's by having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Love keeps no record of wrongs. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, and it includes God's love. God's love keeps no record of wrongs. It's a case of drive away, no more to pay. You can walk away free because the payment has been made. So what does this mean for us here this morning? Well, if you're not a Christian, don't bother trying to pay off your debt to God yourself. Are you really going to try and square accounts with God when you owe 200,000 years in debt and it keeps on increasing all the time as you continue to sin against him? If you try to square accounts with God, you're blind to the size of the debt that you have against God. You owe him an eternity in hell for even the smallest white lie, let alone other greater sins. Imagine the stupidity of going into a bank and trying to pay off a billion-dollar debt with a few dollars, and then those few dollars, they turn out to be monopoly money. What will the teller do with you? He will laugh at you, and if you keep trying to do it, he'll call security and kick you out. That is the stupidity of trying to pay the debt of your sin off yourself. You're a laughing stock to God if you try to do that because you have nothing to offer him to pay off your debt. Your only hope is to ask Christ to take away your sins to the cross and pay the debt for you. Ask him to erase and wipe out the debt that is against your name. If there is anyone who is listening to me now and has not asked Christ to wipe out their debt and is in some way thinking that there's another means by which my debt is being erased, by my own works or the works of somebody else, realize that it is only by Christ taking away your debt and nailing it to the cross that you can have forgiveness of sins. Come to him now, repent of your sins and trust in his death for you. But if you are a Christian, don't ever, ever try to make up for sin by doing good works. That is what the Apostle Paul is really getting at in chapter 2. He's working up to an argument as we uh, go through this together, that there were people who were teaching that you now need to do some specific works. Yes, you're a Christian, but you need to do certain works, certain regulations that we will teach you in order to remain a Christian. And some of the Colossians were tempted to do so, otherwise Paul wouldn't have gotten uh, involved in writing this letter. We need to understand what verse 14 teaches for us as Christians as well, not just for those who are becoming Christians, for unbelievers, how to become a Christian. We need to remember what it's teaching us in verse 14 as Christians, that there is no obligation on us to complete the works of God, to serve him, to keep his laws in order to pay for sin, in order to pay for sin. 
Yes, there's an obligation on us to keep God's works, to, to, to do his works, to keep his laws as Christians. But it's not in order to make up for our sin. We need to understand how foolish it is to try and offer our works for our sin when the debt is already paid. Imagine if you went into a bank and there had been a debt against your name, but it has been completely paid back in full. And then you go in and you start to try and add some money to that debt. And when the banker himself cancelled the debt, how stupid is that to try and add to a debt that is non-existent anymore and how insulting it is to go to God and say, I'm going to do this to make up for that sin that I committed yesterday. And Jesus is there and he knows that he suffered for that sin, body and blood, and then you're going to contribute something to it? How insulting is that? If we as Christians think that we stay a Christian and make up for our sins after we become Christians by our works, then that is legalism. What does legalism look like? Well, it's when you think that because you watched an hour of pornography, you now need to read the Bible for an hour. Or you went out and got drunk last night, so now you need to go to church for an hour the next morning. Or because you said an unkind thing to your brother, you must now say two kind things to him today. Or you didn't clean your room this morning as your parents asked. And so what does that mean? Oh, I need to clean my room plus empty the dishwasher to make up for the fact that I didn't clean my room when I should have. Or I didn't pray this morning as I've said that I would. So that means I have to pray twice as long tonight to make up for this morning's misdemeanor. Now, I'm not saying that these are not good things to do. Saying two kind things after saying one unkind thing is a very nice thing to do. If you haven't spent time with the Lord in prayer, then spending double the time, go for it. Of course, it's a wonderful thing to do. But we don't do those things to clear the debt. We don't think of our sin as a debt that we then can clear ourselves. We must never go into that temptation that is so easy for us to grasp hold of. So what do we do when we break God's law again? What do we do as Christians when we see sin in our lives? We go to God and ask for the Spirit to take our debt to Christ again and take it to the cross and forgive it. As he taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, what are we supposed to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts. And it's a daily prayer that we're supposed to, that idea is that, that not necessarily that you have to pray, that is precise words every day, the, the Lord's Prayer, but give us this day our daily bread. It's seen to be a, a prayer. The concepts within that prayer are meant to be prayed each day, including forgive us our debts as Christians. We must refuse as Christians to be diverted from the cross as the only way to experience forgiveness of sins. We must not give in to the temptations of our hearts to think that, yes, Christ has forgiven the majority, but if I do this, this, and this, I can make up for that, that, and that. No, it is all sins that are forgiven at the cross, 
past, present and future. And we even see that in verse 13. He forgave us all our sins. The word all is there. All our sins are forgiven by Christ. Past, present, future. And if we nail our sins to the cross daily, then what does that mean? We can rejoice daily in the forgiveness of sins. We can rejoice that the pornography, the hateful words, the disobedience, the prayerlessness, it's all nailed to the cross. And so we can say, not sing at this time, we're very careful about not singing at the moment, we can say with Spafford, the hymn writer, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, why can the Christian say that? It is well, it is well with my soul. Well, one of the other verses in the hymn tells us, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, thou hast uh, and but the whole, it is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. It is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. It is well, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul, it is well with my soul. None of us need to fret over any sin at all. If the penalty has been taken and nailed to the cross along with the death that we owe in Christ Jesus, perfect love has driven out fear. It has driven out fear. The love of Christ has driven out the fear in our hearts of our sin and the consequences of it and the fear of the day of judgment when we will be called to account for how we have lived, for how we have failed to serve, how we have failed to keep that covenant of works that Christ gave us. We don't fear the day of judgment. Instead, we welcome it because we look forward to meeting our saviour who cancelled the debt. If a banker cancelled your billion-dollar debt, wouldn't you want to go and meet him and shake his hand? There's going to be no social isolating, self-isolating in heaven. I'm sure we'll get to touch Jesus. You look at the Lord Jesus when he was on earth, he loved to touch people. I'm sure we're going to get to touch Jesus in heaven and we won't have to worry about any sort of virus or contagions in heaven because there is no more sickness, there is no more death. We get to touch Jesus and we get to meet that one on judgment day who cancelled our debt, all of it, wiped it away, 200,000 years plus an infinite number of years more has been wiped away of debt, erased by him at the cross. And so we can say, not sing with Spafford, and Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak with him. 
Heavenly Father, thank you that while we were dead in our sins and the uncircumcision of our sinful nature, you made us alive with Christ. You forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. You took it away, nailing it to the cross in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we ask that you would forgive us this day all our debts and let us all rejoice that it is well, it is well with our souls because of Christ's death on the cross. And we pray this in his name. Amen.